Lockheed C-130 Hercules is an iconic piece of Air Force fleets around the world. It's even the fifth aircraft to mark 50 years of continuous operations with its primary customer, the US Air Force. I'm Alex, and this is the history of the C-130, coming up on Aircraft Grade. Without a doubt, the most iconic military aircraft to ever exist is the Lockheed C-130 Hercules. The 1950s design monster is synonymous around the world as the go-to aircraft for militaries looking for a truly versatile aircraft. I fully believe that the Hercules was revolutionary in its design that allowed it to excel at short and unprepared runway operations, as well as being the first aircraft to be mass-produced with turboprop power plants. It's why I believe that calling the C-130 the Swiss Army Knife of Aviation could not be more true. Its ability to be a troop transporter, medivac vehicle and cargo carrier is just the start of the almost limitless number of applications the Hercules has been used in. From gunship to humanitarian aid hero, the Hercules is a remarkable piece of American aerospace engineering. Today we look at where it all began, its development over the decades and its future. With over 60 years of continuous production, I'm going to take on a journey about the creation of one of the greatest aircraft ever manufactured. At least in my opinion. Picture the scene. It's early 1951, about six months into the gruelling and vicious Korean War. The United States, quite alongside South Korea and other United Nation allies, are beginning to realise their World War II transport powerhouses are no longer adequate to be used in modern warfare. Unlike the fighters and strategic bombers, the Air Force's cargo fleet went untouched for years. Their mixed fleet of Douglas C-47s, C-54s and Curtis C-46s were all flawed in some way or another. Even the Fairchild C-119, the backbone of tactical transport in the USAS fleet, was compromised. These aircraft relied on piston engines, which significantly lacked the power to carry large amounts of cargo. But, more worryingly, they weren't, well safe. No plane or person in active warfare is safe, don't get me wrong, but these old birds didn't help themselves. The already underpowered piston engines couldn't sustain flight if one of the two, twin-engine aircraft were normal then, was compromised. In my eyes, the planes were completely unprepared for Korea, to the point where the military resorted to transporting two divisions of troops from the US to Korea by sea, a journey that took them six weeks, because the transporters lacked the required grunt. Whether they could fly the range or not was redundant, considering they wouldn't have been able to haul the required loads anyway. In response, the Pentagon began discussions into the future transporter for use in the US military. A committee member said that a tactical medium transport would be required, that can land on unimproved ground, be extremely rugged, be primarily for freight transport with troop carrying capability, and carry about £30,000 for 1,500 miles. It was here a basic outline of the C-130 was born, a medium-sized tactical transporter, freighter that is versatile and dependable. This was the key requirement that allowed the Herc to be so successful in my opinion, with the C-130 being designed as a tactical transporter. It could enter the forward battle area. As a result of this, it would be designed to take enemy fire, enhancing its versatility. Why C-130? Well, I didn't know this either, and unless you're a plain naming convention encyclopedia, then I doubt many people actually know the answer. It's actually far more straightforward than you may think. All US military planes are suffixed according to their role. Aircraft with A is their first lesser attack aircraft, built to demolish targets on the ground, B is for bomber, and C is for transport. 
Why not tea? Well, that's training aircraft, <laughs> obviously. After the initial meeting on February 2nd, 1951, the Air Force outlined the final requirement for the C-130 and commissioned a general operating requirement for the plane. The GOR was issued to the big names at the time in US aerospace. Boeing, Douglas, Fairchild, Lockheed, Martin, Chase Aircraft, North American, Northrop and Airlifts Incorporated. The specification required a high altitude cruise capability of at least 35,000 feet at 280 knots, while also housing the capability to fly low and slow at 125 knots to complete airdrops and short takeoff and landing operations. The Air Force required ferry capability of 15 tonnes and wanted a reliable range of 2,000 miles. That is to be powered by engines more reliable and powerful than the hampered piston engines. Out of the nine manufacturers challenged with the task of building America's next cargo plane fit for the future, ten designs were curated from five companies. After Fairchild, North American, Martin and Northrop decided not to take part in the bid. Douglas and Lockheed were the most successful applicants, with their designs going head-to-head. -head. Initially, it seemed that the Lockheed proposal, designated the L-206, wouldn't actually be put into production or even go ahead. Lockheed's chief engineer, Kelly Johnson, believed the building of the C-130 would destroy Lockheed. He believed it was too expensive, but the VP of the company, Hall Hibbard, overruled this decision and the proposal was given the final go-ahead and Lockheed were awarded the contract on July 2nd, 1951, exactly five months after the initial GOR. Lockheed had answered every requirement of the GOR and their design was like nothing they'd ever built before. It was built with a large cargo compartment with a whopping 3,690 square feet usable area. Every inch of the cargo space was usable thanks to its completely unobstructed design, with Lockheed removing any spars or sidewall bulges. Lockheed were inspired by design features from the aircraft it was replacing. The C-130 featured a low ride height, which allowed the cargo area to be installed with loading ramps like seen on the Boeing C-97 or Chase XCG-20. This gave the Hercules roll-on, roll-off loading capability that made it possible for loaders to simply drive vehicles on or off the plane. This saved precious time on the ground. Additional benefits came with this, like the ability to airdrop cargo. Not just any cargo, this could be anything from Sheridan tanks, using a low-altitude parachute extension system, to even improvised explosives. Aiding the low ride height was a distinctive landing gear design. This low-profile design was simple yet effective while taking no storage space away from the cabin. No linkages or folding of the gear was required to lift them, lowering the chance of failure and improving the space efficiency. The tyres were low-pressure and had a large surface area mounted in tandem, meaning if one failed, the second would be there to pick up the slack. Hell, the design of the Hercules landing was so thorough it was even approved for motorway landings. The unprecedented design of the C-130 could fill hours of content. Its unique 23-window cockpit design that offered unrivaled visibility for the pilots, its high tail that allowed extreme slow-speed performance and loading capabilities are just a few of many. But as alluded to earlier, by far the most notable addition to the C-130 was the engines. I think that the revolutionary engine design, which we'll talk about in a minute, is quite often ignored when people discuss the C-130. This is an injustice in my opinion, since they were so crucial in its success. The C-130 
The C130 used turboprops, the replacement for the unreliable and underpowered pistons. In fact, the Hercules was the first US non-fighter or bomber aircraft to use turbine engines. It was a lucky coincidence that Lockheed began working on the C-130 just as General Motors' Allison were building the T-56, a lightweight and powerful prop engine. The two came together to produce one of only a few brand new airframes to also feature a new power plant. I guess you could say it was a match made in heaven. Or maybe not. The T-56 was a single shaft turboprop and worked by having a gas generator turbine connected to a reduction gearbox that drives the propeller by a solid shaft. The gas generator spun at a constant speed of 14,000 RPM. Unlike previous designs, the power lever in the Hercules only changed the pitch of the propeller blades and didn't change the engine or prop speed. This generates more power and the pitch is constantly changed as the airspeed increases. What's the point of this? Well, the, the Allison T-56 offered superior range than turbojet engines, the other type of engine considered and produced a better power-to-weight ratio than their preceding piston-driven units. Also, they delivered power to the pilots instantly, unlike jet engines spool-up or the piston engines lag. This meant the Hercules was suddenly the fastest accelerating aircraft in the Air Force's fleet. Oh, the new engines were so powerful that led to the C-130A being overpowered with excellent climb performance and even gave it the ability to fly with only one engine, a quarter of what it was designed to fly with. The powerful engines even led the designers to pressurise the cabin of the aircraft, allowing it to fly at higher altitudes. Along with this came a strengthened fuselage which only aided its versatility. One last point on the engines, I promise I'll stop waffling soon is that the Hercules is actually the largest and heaviest plane to land and take off of an aircraft carrier, completely unassisted. The Navy tested the C-130 in 1963 as a test to see whether they could replace their Grumman C-1s. The Hercules performed 29 touch-and-goes and 21 full-stop landings on the USS Forrestal, but it was ultimately decided that it was too big to be practical. I think these tests say all that is needed about the C-130. Something seen as an impossibility, madness even, was easy. No stress for the Hercules. It's truly incredible. This excellent aircraft carrier performance is a direct result of the C-130's ability to land on unprepared landing sites. The C-130 is the largest ever plane to regularly and safely land on short and unprepared strips partly due to its power, but also due to the fact that turboprop engines are far more durable than turbofans. I guess good design in one aspect of an aircraft can lead to capabilities not ever dreamed of in the future. The first prototype of the Hercules, called the YC-130, took to the skies on August 23rd, 1954, departing Lockheed's Burbank plant. The trip took the YC-130 to Edwards Air Force Base with a flight time of 61 minutes. The final aircraft rolled off the production line in December 1956, using a three-blade propeller design that stood over 15 feet in diameter, a distinctive feature of the C-130A variant. The plane debuted with the 463rd Troop Carrier Wing of the US Air Force. 231 A-models were built, with almost all of them being delivered to the US Air Force. The Australian Air Force became the first non-US military to operate the C-130A, taking a total of 12 from 1958. 
the production model could carry an impressive amount of cargo, like six pallets or two to three Humvees, or if required, 74 patients and five medical crew. The versatility of the C-130 was soon realised with the creation of the C-130D, a modified version of the A model to be used as a support aircraft for early warning radar sites in the northern ice cap. The Hercules was fitted with skis and soon became a favourite for the Air Force. The initial success of the C-130A was clear and Lockheed quickly developed a B variant with increased fuel capacity and other improvements like increased aileron hydraulic pressure. But the biggest improvement of the slightly updated B variant was the addition of four blade propellers with a smaller diameter of only 12 feet. This moved the propeller blades further away from the body of the plane, making them quieter and caused the tips to rotate slower at the same 1020 RPM. The result of this was an even bigger improvement in acoustics. Interestingly, the B variant was also supposed to use a revolutionary control system called blown controls. High pressure air was blown over the control surfaces to improve low speed performance and was trialled on an NC-130B testbed. Although the system was a success, reducing landing speed to 63 knots and cutting landing distance in half, it didn't improve takeoff performance, so it was rendered inequitable. It's a shame we didn't see this implemented, even if it wasn't practical, it would have been very cool. Lockheed also introduced an electronic reconnaissance variant of the C-130B, called the C-130B-2. A total of 13 examples underwent conversion. The B-2 was distinctive with its false external wind tanks, which functioned as signals intelligence receiver antennas. Extra antennas were also found on the upper fuselage and vertical fin. In my opinion, no better test could have come for Lockheed's new offering than the challenges of the war in Vietnam. The 19-year conflict was the ultimate test for the Hercules and was when it really proved its worth as the backbone of the US Air Force's transport fleet. The Vietnam War was a perfect example of how well designed the C-130 was for modern conflict. Unlike other military aircraft at the time, the C-130 required no modifications for Vietnam and was ready to perform on the front line. It played a pivotal role in supplying reinforcements and rescuing injured soldiers from some of the most remote locations in Vietnam. Some even said that without the C-130s, the war couldn't have continued. But if the Navy's or Air Force's F-4 Phantoms were destroyed, the war could have continued. At least, theoretically. I think this would have been beneficial for the US military effort in more than one way. Not only would it be saving them costs in having to make modifications, but for the first time in decades, they had an aircraft that they could just rely on and not have to worry about it deciding to not want to fly anymore mid-air. The Hercules offered such a wide range of operational uses, I think it was well suited to the challenging conditions of the Vietnam War. In fact, a special unloading manoeuvre was developed specifically to overcome the challenges it faced. Instead of taxiing and parking to unload the cargo of the Hercules, Loadmaster simply got the plane to turn 180 degrees after landing before immediately taking off again. While on takeoff roll, cargo tie-downs would be released and the pallets would slide out the back of the plane. If the loadmasters were accurate, the pallets were ready to be picked up by a forklift while sitting just two inches apart. Maybe the Lockheed engineers weren't the only forward thinkers working on this aircraft. During the Vietnam War, Lockheed introduced the C-130E, an extended range variant of the Hercules to act as an interim long-range transport for the military air transport service. 
The new model included the additions of external fuel tanks under the wings and the installation of more powerful T56A7A turboprops. More importantly, the E model had a strengthened fuselage and an avionic upgrade. In my opinion, the introduction of the C-130E was just a vehicle for the US development of a combat Hercules to be used in Vietnam and beyond. The Lockheed's MC-130 Combat Talons was the designation chosen to use for the family of Special Mission Hercules to be operated by the United States Air Force Special Operations Command, M standing for multi-mission. The basic outline of the role of the MC-130s would be infiltration, exfiltration, resupply of special operations, as well as operating air-to-air refuelling missions. The primary aircraft to come out of this project, and by far the most impressive, was the AC-130 Spectre gunship. These planes could be fitted with a plethora of weapons, like 7.62mm miniguns, 20 and 40mm cannons. All weapons are mounted in the unpressurised cabin and are designed to fire from the port side of the aircraft. When the aircraft was ready to perform an attack, it would make a large circle around the target, called a pylon turn, so it could fire for longer than traditional attacks. The most interesting use of the MC-130 series, at least in my opinion, came late in the Vietnam War. It came in the form of the BLU-82 weapon system an American 15,000-pound bomb designed to flatten a section of forest into a helicopter landing zone. What makes this interesting is that the BLU-82s were not delivered through the traditional B-52s. They were too dense to fit within the safe weight and balance envelope, so a new system had to be developed. The solution? Load it onto a pallet and drop it out the back of a Hercules, because, well, why not? It was incredibly effective and even more testament to the sheer flexibility of the C-130. I don't think it's an understatement to say that the C-130 saved lives in Vietnam. This, in my eyes, wasn't publicly shown any better than on the 19th of April 1975, during an evacuation mission to fly Vietnamese and American dependents, civilians and children out of the country. A single Hercules carried 452 passengers plus one crew member. The whole journey was flown by a single Vietnamese pilot on a plane intended to be operated by five crew and hold a maximum of 92 passengers. Although not intended to be used this way, it's clear that without the C-130, many could have perished. The C-130 Hercules proved itself in the Vietnam War and the following Gulf and Falkland conflicts. But these are only a small selection of the wider range of roles the Hercules has fulfilled throughout its tenure. The Hercules plays a pivotal role in protecting the waters surrounding the United States, for example. The US Coast Guard operate a fleet of HC-130H aircraft, based on the C-130H. The H variant was the next development of the Hercules, with upgraded T-56A-15 turboprops, a new outer wing design and improved avionics. Alongside the Coast Guard, the Air Force also operated a fleet of the modified C-130H. They equipped theirs for the deployment of pararescuemen and survival equipment in the case of giving aid to stranded troops was necessitated. They were also used for combat and non-combat search and rescue missions and used as refuelling stations for combat rescue helicopters. 
The Coast Guard primarily uses their HC-130H aircraft for long-range search and rescue, drug smuggling enforcement, illegal vessel patrols, aiding homeland security and flying logistic missions. Over on my side of the pond, the UK, the Hercules has fulfilled many roles and had a very successful service life in the RAF. The MOD procured the C-130K model of the Hercules, the UK export of the C-130H, alongside the Ks, or C-1s as they were known in service, the RAF also operated a stretched version with an increased fuselage length of 4.57 metres. The RAF has used their C-130s to fulfil a wide variety of roles, including dropping paratroopers, medical evacuation, and the key for their logistical operations in the Falklands and Gulf War. Another British Hercules was purchased for a completely different use. The Met Office converted the C-130K into a metrological research plane. The plane was heavily modified, with the most obvious being the addition of a red and white striped atmospheric probe on the nose. Using the Hercules as a weather research craft isn't uncommon. In fact, the US Air Force Reserve Command operates a C-130J Super Hercules, more on that later, as a weather reconnaissance plane. Known as the Hurricane Hunters, they fly their WC-130Js into the eye of hurricanes to measure wind speed and barometric pressure. This can help weather experts judge the severity of an imminent tropical storm. Across its service, the Hercules has been a key instrument in humanitarian aid missions across the world. The C-130 has helped people from all walks of life, like the people of Congo, Somalia or Bosnia and the victims of Hurricane Katrina. It's the go-to plane for the reason we've mentioned too many times to count. It can be modified to fulfil a variety of roles, whether that be transforming into a flying hospital or transporting snow-trapped cows. During the crisis in Haiti, following the earthquake in 2010, C-130s hauled over 13,600 tonnes of cargo, transported more than 25,800 passengers and performed medical evacuations for 280 passengers. Also, in 2010, the 910th Airlift Wing's 757th Airlift Squadron participated in the clean-up of the oil during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. They operated the Department of Defence's only certified fixed aerial spray system to spray pesticides onto the disaster scene. During the five-week mission, the aircrews flew 92 sorties and sprayed around 30,000 acres with nearly 149,000 gallons of oil dispersant. I think it's clear that the Hercules is a truly fantastic aircraft, but what's the future of the type? Well, it's a very good question and one that needs to be answered. In the early 1990s, Lockheed, later Lockheed Martin, developed an updated version of the Hercules called the C-130J Super Hercules. It's the only model still in production. The upgraded model received a substantial overhaul from the previous generations. The engines were upgraded to the Rolls-Royce AE 2100DE turboprops based on the original Allison design. The propellers were manufactured by Doughty and were made of composite materials. And arguably the biggest change was the addition of digital avionics and a reduction in the amount of crew required from 5 to 3. But that's just my opinion. The upgraded C-130J has a 40% greater range, roughly 3,262 miles, 21% higher speed and 41% shorter takeoff distance than its predecessors. An extended version of the Super is also available which extends the fuselage by 15 feet. 
in its relatively short lifespan, it's been highly successful, selling over 400 aircraft as of February 2018. I can see the Hercules remaining in operation for a long time, mainly for the reason that a US replacement isn't due to be produced until 2030s. The same can't be said for the British forces. Originally taking delivery of their Hercules C4, or the C-130J-30, and Hercules C5, the C-130J, in August 1998, news of their retirement has been inconsistent and overcomplicated. Originally forecasted for retirement in 2022, it was decided that 14 of the larger C4s would be kept in the force until 2035. Consequently, the C5 fleet drawdown began in 2016. However, in the recent 2021 Defence Command paper, it was announced all Super Hercules aircraft would be retired by 2023, just 10 years after the complete retirement of the C-130K fleet. Although, having seen how quickly the UK government changed their mind about aircraft procurement, I wouldn't take this as a concrete date. Having said this, the RAF has already found a replacement for their C-130s, the Airbus A400M Atlas, of which 22 have been ordered and 20 delivered. They offer improved cargo capacity while still being able to utilise rough landing strips, so maybe it's unlikely that the Hercules aircraft will have a life after 2023 in the UK. It's a difficult call to make. Considering the US forces are willing to operate aircraft for extended periods of time, the B-52 Stratofortress comes to mind, I have no doubt that the Hercules still has a couple of decades left, stateside. I've said too many times about how versatile the C-130 has been, and will continue to be in the future. It will certainly be a shame when the final C-4s leave the RAF's fleet, and when the others leave the US in the coming decades. So that's it. The history of the Lockheed C-130 Hercules. You've been listening to Aircraft Grade, the aviation podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Aircraft Grade, where we post supplementary podcast content. I've been Alex, goodbye.